All right, so the Bible is loaded with questions that God has for us, for those that follow him and honor him and worship him. We saw, la- we saw that last week, right out of the gate, in the beginning chapters of the Bible. God had questions for Adam and Eve immediately following their choice to disobey and eat from the exact tree God told them not to. The couple had no idea how devastating their consequences of their actions would be. In fact, the purpose, <clears throat> the purpose of God's questions were to help the couple, help them see what they had done and what had changed because of their decisions. Where are you is what God asked. He said, where are you, Adam? Where are you now in relation to how I created you? And where are you in relation to me, your creator and, and father? Their sinful and selfish actions had forever severed and disfigured the image of God that they were created with and the perfect relationship that they had enjoyed with their creator. The man and woman had become afraid and ashamed and guilty. They had listened to the lies rather than trusting the voice of God. Their sin had made them so self-conscious, so insecure. So now they're easily deceived by voices other than God's, whether it's the enemy's or their own faulty human reasoning. So God's antidote for the lies that we so easily drink in is the, the truth. It's both for the couple, now, the, the couple back then and for us now, is to ask the question, who told you that? To assess whether we're listening to truth from the voice of God or lies, lies from the barrage of voices that now cloud our thinking and attempt to keep us afraid and ashamed and feeling guilty. It's the truth of God's word that frees us to love God and to be loved by God, how he designed us in the first place. That's why Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So today, I want to look at the most important question Jesus ever asked his original band of disciples, the 12. And it's still the most important question in history. It's as important today as it was in the first century, this question. So important because the answer to this question determines where you'll spend eternity. I mean, literally, heaven and hell hang in the balance. And it's the question behind everything we do here as a church. The answer to this question It drives every program we run, every decision we make, every dollar we spend. So it's a pretty important question around here. So we decided to take it to the street and ask this question out there in Fairfield this week. I want you to take a look. Who is Jesus to you? Was he actually who he says he was, or was he just like a nice guy? Um, I think he is who everyone says he is in the Bible. You know, that's I just uh, go with what the Bible says. So, um, well, I'm not religious. I wasn't raised religiously, so I think I don't know. I, I think just as someone you ask for help, I guess. Jesus to me is the man who died for my sins, and he, uh, he gave me a reason to live. He's the reason I wake up every day and I come out and I 
I minister to people and I try to speak life to people and I try to live for something greater than myself. Okay, so who do you say Jesus is to you? Well, I do believe there was somebody who they named Jesus. I do believe that somebody got on a cross and was tortured. And I think that's just how everyone developed their religions. Probably a bit of a legend, but I don't believe in the whole theory of it. Christians believe he's the son of God, and um, but that he was Jewish, I think, um, and that he, and there are different beliefs in that. I don't really, I just wasn't raised in either of them, so I don't really have an opinion on that. Probably that he existed at some point, was a real person. Yeah. knowledge of him out there. I want to go to the source of the original question as asked by Jesus himself found in the Bible in, in uh, Mark chapter 8. And while you turn there with me to Mark chapter 8, I'm just going to set the context with you. We're a couple of years into Jesus' ministry and he and his disciples are traveling in the northern part of Israel and they're teaching from village to village about the kingdom of God. And here's where we're going to pick up the action in verse 27 of of Mark chapter 8. It reads this way. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Ding, 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 ding. Correct answer. Good answer, Peter. Good answer. You are, in fact, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. It should be no surprise to us, though, that Peter got this answer correct, given that Peter has spent the last couple of years at Jesus' side. I mean, nobody has had a better view of the life and ministry of Jesus these last few years than Peter. He, of all people, should have no doubt about Jesus' identity. I want you to think about, just for a moment, all that Peter has seen and experienced while at Jesus' hip for these last couple of years. And I'll just highlight from the beginning of the book of Mark up to the question, just to kind of hit some of the high points of what Peter saw and experienced. So Peter was one of the first disciples Jesus ever called to follow him. He heard Jesus teach with authority in the synagogues and then turn around and cast demons out of a man with a stern rebuke. Peter's never seen anything like this. He touched and healed countless people with various diseases, even those with leprosy. He taught about fasting and Sabbath keeping while restoring a man's shriveled hand all on the Sabbath. He called 12 ordinary men to follow him and he gave them authority to preach and teach, heal sickness, and cast out demons all in his name, in his, the power of his name. They couldn't understand this one. Jesus taught in parables using simple everyday metaphors to explain deep spiritual truths, both amazing and confounding his crowds. Peter saw Jesus calm a violent storm with a simple command to be still, and then watched as a herd of 2,000 pigs ran into this same lake after Jesus cleansed a man who was tormented by a legion of demons, sending the demons into the pigs. Peter was an eyewitness to a woman who was healed by her just touching the hem of his garment, just touching his clothes. They'd never seen anything like this. Peter certainly hadn't. And then they watched Jesus 
raise a young girl from death to life as simply as he was waking a sleeping child. Peter watched Jesus multiply a boy's lunch when he took five loaves and two fish and made it into a meal that fed over 5,000. And then they had 12 basketfuls left over. And shortly thereafter, he fed 4,000 in much the same way in a different location. After this banquet, Peter watched in amazement as Jesus walked across the top of the water. He walked on the water out to the boat that the disciples were sailing in as if it were nothing special. Peter saw Jesus heal the sick and who approached him or were carried to him. It didn't matter who they were. People from every nationality, every ethnicity. Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Samaritans, didn't matter. Jesus healed them all. So when Jesus asked the question, who do you say I am? It's no surprise that Peter answered correctly. Anybody who had seen what Peter had could come to no other conclusion. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. But what if you hadn't seen Jesus heal or heard him teach or watch him cast out demons or command the wind and waves to obey or walk on water or or feed a multitude with a boy's lunch? What if you hadn't experienced all the things that pointed to Jesus as the Messiah? How would you then answer this question if you didn't have that kind of history with Jesus? Well, that's the question I want to ask today because I want to be as practical as I can today. Because here's the truth about me. I have a lot of friends who are like the people on the street who have a very limited knowledge of Jesus. In fact, most of what they know is kind of fuzzy and it might be inaccurate and sometimes just plain untrue. Those are my friends. How do I help these friends see Jesus for who he is? How do I help them see him as the Messiah so they can get the answer to this question right? Here's what I'm also convinced of. You probably have friends and family just like I do who don't know Jesus, whose understanding is a bit fuzzy, who have not come to see him for who he is as the Messiah, as the Christ yet. So how do we lead them to the Savior? That's my question that I want to explore today. Good news. I found a passage of Scripture that speaks and gives me comfort and counsel concerning this very issue. It's a passage where a stranger to Jesus, one with limited knowledge of him and had, who had all kinds of misperceptions of who he was and what he was like concerning his identity, eventually got the answer to the question, who do you say I am, correct? She was a woman who knew nothing about him but then came to see him as the Messiah. And I realized that like my friends, Jesus is still in the life transformation business, that he still can draw people who do not know him to himself, that he wasn't beyond the reach of Jesus, that he was still the object of her affection, his affection, and a recipient of his grace and mercy. That's really good news for you and me, for those of us who have friends and family who don't know Jesus yet. So I want you to follow with me to, in a well-worn passage that speaks to this issue. You can turn with me to John chapter 4. It's the familiar, familiar passage about the woman at the well. And I'm so excited because my buddy John Peterson often encourages me with what he's learning, 
what God's showing him in scripture. And I try to do the same thing back for, with him. And I remember the day we we're outside the Bridgeport Rescue Mission and we're talking about what is God teaching us. And we're standing on the street corner of Fairfield Ave there and he shares with me what he saw in this passage in John 4. I'm taking it and running with it this morning. So if you have problems with it, you can go see John. If you're enthralled with it, you can come praise me. How's that? So John chapter 4, awesome passage. You will see something that you probably haven't seen before. I had not seen it before. You know what I saw? I saw a progression. I saw a woman who knew nothing about Jesus come to understand little by little, not all at once, who Jesus is. And her, her fuzziness kind of cleared up. And her misunderstanding lifted. And her misperceptions changed to become an accurate perception of who Jesus is as the Messiah, the, the Son of God. Again, it, you know what it does? It motivates me to persevere and to not give up on those who don't know Jesus, yet all, those all around me, but to just to demonstrate that Jesus is still in the life transformation business by, by showing what he's done in me and what he does through me. I want you to watch the progression of understanding and revelation as Jesus speaks with this Samaritan woman. Because I think she represents the common misperceptions that people have, that your friends have and my friends have about Jesus. And it's the reason so many have not surrendered to Jesus yet, because they really don't know who he is. They really don't know what he's like. So let's let the text demonstrate how Jesus draws someone to himself as he reveals who he really is. John chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. You can follow along. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, has heard, had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Let's stop for a second and set the, the action. Jesus is headed from the southern part of Israel to the northern hill region of Galilee. Problem, the central chunk of land is the region of Samaria, and the Samaritans are, are disdained and despised by the Jews. This is a territory that, that Jews would often take a long route around, so great was their contempt for the Samaritan people. They, just, they wanted to stay out of the region altogether. They wanted no contact at all. But in this account, Jesus and his disciples are taking the more direct route, and somewhere on their 60-mile journey to Galilee, Jesus stops to rest by the town's water source. Pick up the action in verse 7. So when the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So Jesus asked this woman for a drink and she's rather taken aback. I mean, she doesn't know who Jesus is, has no clue. She does know he's a Jewish man asking her for a drink. And this is what she does know. Jews have contempt for Samaritans and avoid all contact with them. 
The Jews have, re, have rejected Samaritans as unworthy, unworthy of a relationship with them. She's bewildered because Jesus is asking for a drink, and Jews actually refuse to use any cup, any saucer, any plate, any element that uh, a Samaritan has used. They pronounce it unclean. In fact, in your text note, the thing in parentheses there in verse 9 where it says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans, the literal translation is, for Jews refuse to use the same dishes as Samaritans. So great was their contempt for one another. So you can see the reason why she's taken aback by Jesus' request. She only knows Jesus as a Jewish man, one who condemns her and rejects her, sees her as one who's under God's judgment and wants wants no contact with. But it goes on. We'll read on in verse 10. So Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? So Jesus answers her, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink, and I'd be giving you living water. But the truth is, she's not buying it. She says, you don't even have anything to draw water with and get something from this well, and you're talking about living water? What do you, you think you're greater than Jacob and his family who, who dug this well and gave it to us years ago? You're talking big there. Jewish man, but the reality is, you have nothing to draw with. You need me. You want something from me. That's how she saw Jesus. She saw him first as one who condemns her and rejects her, and now she says, and now the guy wants something from me. That's her perception of Jesus. Still, rather negative perception, but that's all about to change. We'll keep reading. Verse 13. So Jesus answered her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Okay. Jesus has now captured her attention. He's speaking her language. She's like, any water that will quench my thirst for good sounds awesome to me. Give it to me. I I like the sound of that. You see what's happening? Jesus went from someone who rejects her and condemns her that she'd want nothing to do with to someone who wants something from her now to someone who has something for her. Now she's leaning in. See, now she's interested. Now she's like, hey, you can help me. Where can I get this water? Look at Jesus' answer in verse 16. He said, well, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. 
I don't know if you see what's going on here, but things just got real personal, right? The woman says to Jesus, where do I get this water? Jesus says, go call your husband. I'll explain it to you both. I have no husband. Jesus' response is very kind. It's very gracious. His reply demonstrates that he knows all about her broken family situation, both past and present, and yet he is kind and gracious to this woman. He doesn't judge her. He doesn't condemn her. All he does is he confirms that technically what she has told him, what she has said about having no husband is true. His gentleness and kindness is preserving this conversation. The woman recognizes that only God could know the intimate details of her broken family history. So she concludes, I can see that you're a prophet. So feeling a little embarrassed by the details Jesus understands and awkward around this man of God, she, she scrambles to say something spiritual or religious. So thinking on her feet, she thinks of the one thing she knows about, like the Samaritan-Jewish controversy, and it deals with where they disagree about what's the center of worship. So she goes on and, and says this thing about worshiping on a mountain or Jerusalem. Jesus' response, look at 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Jesus' response to the lady's rabbit trail is to say, Lady, where you worship doesn't matter. It's how you worship that matters to God. He's looking for simple, honest, authentic worship from the heart that engages the entire spirit. That's true worship. Those are the kind of worshipers God's looking for. The woman then responds in verse 25. The woman said, well, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. The woman says, you know, I, I really don't know a whole lot about this religious, spiritual stuff. I do know this, that when Messiah comes, he'll explain and help us understand everything that we don't know. He'll make it all clear to us. And Jesus said, well, that day's today. You're speaking to him. I'm the one you're waiting for. Can you imagine what her heart is doing? It's got to be pounding out of her chest. I mean, her mind has, has to be racing, don't you think? Here in this conversation with this man of God, she's trying to assess and, and process this entire conversation, and she's thinking now, oh my gosh, was I just talking with the Christ? Did he really reveal everything about me? Could he really be the Messiah? We'll continue the action in verse 27. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked him, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, the woman leaving her water jar, she went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. 
This woman has got to be pondering on her way back to the village how the perception of this Jewish man she was speaking with has changed. Once it was the one to be avoided, the one who condemned her and rejected her, like all Jews do. And, and then he, he all of a sudden became this person who wanted something from her. She, he was a thirsty man looking for a drink and needed her help. He wanted something from her. And then he became, with the offer of living water, he became someone who has something for her. Right? So she, she starts to lean in and say, this guy can help me. He can bless me. He, I might get something from him. Amazing transition when you see that God is not some, somebody who wants something from you, but he has something for you. So she leans in. Still not a fully accurate picture of Jesus, but she's getting there. And then Jesus, it was when he told her about the intimate details of her life that she realized that this is a man of God. This is one who speaks for God. I perceive that you're a, a prophet. I want you to note this, that even with these embarrassing details, strong evidence of a life that probably was less than God-honoring, not particularly holy, this woman did not feel condemned. She did not feel rejected by this one. You know, she felt, she felt the compassion and kindness of Jesus. She's the one who, who felt his mercy of one who could reveal and unveil everything, and yet he treated her with compassion, with gentleness, with kindness. Maybe that's why she's so eager to run to the townspeople and say, you gotta meet this guy. He knows everything about me. Could he really be the Messiah? The net result of her invitation to the townspeople is found a little bit later in the text. You can skip down to verse 39. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony, the testimony of, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. I mean, look at that. Look at what Jesus did. This woman has become an evangelist. This woman with a broken family history has told her story of sorts, and Jesus used it to be a bridge to get the townspeople to come and learn about him and get a more accurate perception of him. And many believe, not only the woman, but many in the town believed because she introduced them to the one who could be the Messiah. You know what happened? The woman and the townspeople had their perception changed. So it became clearer and clearer to who Jesus is. You know what changed? They realized that Jesus doesn't reject them or condemn them, that God's not mad at them. They came to realize that he doesn't want something from them, but he has something for them. It's called living water. It wells up into eternal life into those who believe. You know what they came to know? They came to see that he was not only a prophet, a person who speaks for God, they came to see that he was indeed God, that he was God's son. We now know that he is the savior of the world. He knows everything about us, yet doesn't condemn us, he accepts us, he loves us. That's the kind of God they came to understand. How good is that?
You know what they realize? They realize that he delights in showing mercy, that he loves to be kind. In fact, Romans 2.4 says it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. It's when, when people understand that God accepted you, all your faults, all your flaws, and yet accepts you, loves you, and has given you living water, eternal life, that draws them to the Savior. They get an accurate perception. It goes from one who condemns to one who wants something from, to someone who has something for, to one who speaks for God, to God, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one. That's what God does. That's the kind of God we serve. Here's what's really cool. For those of us post the cross, we also know that God demonstrated his great love for us on the cross. His sacrificial death not only saved us, but it demonstrated the greatest act of mercy triumphing over judgment in history. 